Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations with the intention of demystifying, destigmatizing, and desensitizing what really gets talked about behind the closed doors of the therapy room. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Selkin. And we're seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. So join us as we dive into the ways that therapy can be connecting not only to yourself, but also to those around you. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. We have a very special guest who is actually a friend of mine, known as a writer, a mental health advocate, and creator of the mental health podcast, You Me Empathy. And on May 27th, he's launching a brand new collaborative mental health community called the Feely Human Collective, which is going to be a space for sensitive, heart-leading, feel-your-feelings people to grow their capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Um, Right? And I think this friendship to me is sort of what is so powerful about social media. This is someone that I started following because I don't know, I saw something I think someone had reposted of known and what you had posted resonated with me so much. I started following you, just really started loving your posts, started listening to your podcasts. And then at one point, I think you asked me to be on your podcast and I was so excited and we just sort of formed a friendship. So I think that's what's so cool about social media is you end up meeting people that you might not meet otherwise. Thank you so much for joining us, Noan. We're so excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's been, um, this is, I, I've, been, I've been sort of anxious leading up to this, and I'm very excited to be, to be here. Why yeah. anxious? I don't know. I, I, I think I'm anxious before even every one of my Yumi Empathy recordings, even yeah. though I've done, you know, 140 of them mm. you know, at this point, you know, so it's just, uh, it's just an excited anxiety, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, I like that. That makes me feel a little bit better that after 140 of these, Danae and I might still also feel like that anticipatory anxiety. <laughs> yeah. It's That's just normal. that you're excited to connect. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. There's so much about your podcast that I love. I love that you start almost every one of your podcasts with sort of a, a check-in, a mental health check-in to see how people are feeling, how they're doing. I feel like you just did it a little bit for us. It's just sort of your natural way of being to sort of right. speak to how you're doing and what's coming up. I, I feel like I would love a little bit if you would just, um, you know, I definitely, you were one of the first people that I thought of when I thought of this thing of sort of demystifying and destigmatizing the idea of mental health work and mm-hmm. therapy. And I'd love if you would just tell us a little bit about your relationship with therapy and, you know, whatever about your background that you feel like you want to start off with. Sure. So I first went to therapy maybe when I was about. I guess I was in my early 20s and I was still sort of in the throes of early anorexia recovery and very much still kind of recovering from the sort of the past 20 years of just kind of living uh, without really knowing myself Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot, a great deal of just kind of hiding my emotions, a great deal of shutting down my heart as sort of protective measures growing up and when I went to therapy the first time, you know, I ran through the motions, which I think probably a lot of us can relate to. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to experience it. I, don't, I didn't know how to experience myself in that context, that emotional mm-hmm. sort of feely context. And, and, you know, that was in my early 20s. I'm 38 now. I've done a lot of work since then. I'm currently in therapy and um, it's an immense tool for me just a great self-knowing tool, really. Mm-hmm. That's like kind of what it's all about. It's, it's giving me perspective on 
my heart and, and why I feel the, the things I feel. And it, it's just a, a good sort of tool for me in my own mental health. And, and I think without therapy, I think I might not be here. I, I went through a, you know, some pretty dark times and a lot of my, you know, not knowing myself, a lot of sort of hiding my emotions resulted in a lot of anger, which mm -hmm. is common, as you guys know, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of anger, you know, lashing out, a lot of just destructive behavior in my late teens and early 20s, stuff that I'm not proud of. But, you know, I'm here today and I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to really be in a place in my life where I'm really finally starting to know myself a little better and it's taken a while i mean not that there's i mean that's that's the endless journey of living right is like knowing ourselves and figuring who that person is but i'm i think like at 38 i'm finally starting to kind of figure out who the hell i am as a person and it's it's exciting but it's mm -hmm. also scary and it it comes with a certain amount of boundary setting and uh, standing up for myself and letting go of a lot of old stories and baggage and things like that. But uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. So many profound things. I like don't even know which one to go with. <laughs> I do love though. So this idea, you know, as you were talking, it's like the Jungian term individuation, right? Which, which mm. is a lifelong journey. And I think so many of us feel like, oh, well, when I do this, I'll know myself. Or when I accomplish this thing, I'll know myself. And, and I, I almost want to point out to the listeners, like, you almost will never know yourself because the idea is that you're constantly evolving and it is a lifelong journey and there's excitement and curiosity in that, even if there's fear and we, we should be excited about that journey, right? It shouldn't be as scary as I guess we kind of make it out to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm pretty fond of Buddhism. There's a lot of Buddhism in the sort of the seeking journey and it's, yeah. it's a constant thing. And I, I agree with you. And I, I think that's a the piece of it that is sometimes hard is the change that, you know, the evolving that is part of that. And there's a lot of grief that's mm -hmm. wrapped up in that. I've experienced some of that. And, and I think it's hard to, even if like you like who you are, it's hard to come to terms with who you are, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and all of your foibles and bright spots and dark spots, all of it, it's, it's hard to really look at yourself in a truthful, authentic way. And, um, you know, it takes, it takes effort and it takes a great deal of humility for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because today and I were just having, we actually just did a coaching session with somebody where that was almost the theme of it, which was the work to know yourself is so much more about understanding, like you said, your foibles, like your shadow mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's learning and accepting and loving those pieces. And that's the biggest component that many of us skip over is, is that right. It's, it's, that's, that's the journey to know yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love what you were saying about, you know, your earliest experiences in therapy and how, you know, I think that's true of so many of us. We sort of, I mean, I think now there's like shows that sort of illustrate a little bit of what therapy is like, but I definitely have people say to me all the time, like, what do people even do? They just come right. in and they start like telling you their life story or how does that work? Where's and I think, the couch? <laughs> do I lay down here? Like yeah. give a clipboard? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so like when you look back at your early experiences now, how do you sort of view that younger known? Like what was, what was happening for him? What, um, you know, you, you mentioned um, having an eating disorder and sort of that that was something that sort of was your catalyst to bring you into therapy. What do you understand about what was going on for him at that time? Yeah, you know, I, I think about that person and it kind of breaks my heart to think back. 
uh, mm. you know, and, 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 and see and understand now the pain that I was in and the, just the hiding of myself that I was doing. And, mm. but I've done a lot of work in try, trying to understand that person. And, and I was, you know, I was in an environment that felt unsafe a lot mm. and it felt scary a lot. And, you know, I being a very sensitive person, always have been, still am, it felt like I couldn't express that sensitivity really anywhere. And so what I started to do was just kind of shut down. I, I call it my heart guard, which, you know, is just this sort of impenetrable cage around mm -hmm. the thing now that I lead with and I'm so proud of, right? But at the time, it was just this thing that protected me from a father who I was terrified of, you know, he was very emotionally manipulative and scary and abusive. And I didn't know how to interact with that. And it was scary. And so shutting down was my mechanism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, that is like, even the shutting down is like, I'm, st I still do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, ca I catch myself, you know, a, like a perfect example of this, it was maybe six months ago or something. I was playing uh, a game of Settlers of Catan with some friends and I started to feel this joy, right? Like I'm having this, like, I sort of recognize that I'm having this joyful experience with my friends and, you know, outwardly expressing that joy. And then there was a part of my brain or whatever psyche that said, no, you need to tamp that down like you can't see that because that's scary right you know you don't want you know you don't want people to see that because then that's a vulnerability or something right I think one of the old stories I mentioned earlier that I that I carry with me from sort of that period of my life where I was guarding everything is this idea that I don't deserve good things or joyful experiences mm -hmm. and that I need to serve right? I need to be a sort of utilitarian tool in whatever joy or sort of experiences that my parents needed of me, right? And so breaking out of that mold has been a challenge. Uh, but, it, you know, I'm at a place now where I can see it, but I still fall back into it. It's hard. Mm -hmm. Those old stories, right? They're so comfortable. I think you just put, you touched on something really important that I think a lot of people can resonate with too, which is this idea that it's not just the scary or the negative feelings that we tend to have those defenses against. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the happy, positive, joyful experiences or feelings too, right? I think a lot of people don't realize that any of our um, addictions or vices, in many ways, uh, I think it's Brene Brown actually in her very first her vulnerability piece, right, that exploded for her, that talks about how you cannot selectively numb feelings, right? right. It's like if you numb against the bad, that means you numb against the good. Absolutely, and yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize that there's a connection there sometimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, a little sort of context, I, my parents, <laughs> their relationship wasn't very healthy. Um, you know, uh, they, my dad cheated on my mom for their entire relationship and was very abusive and, and just, very difficult and and they you know they divorced and they got married twice and and back to each other uh it was very you know unhealthy and one of my sort of emotional responses to that in in that context of like me trying to like people please and sort of 
satiate and all these things emotionally, you know, not sort of looking at me, just everything to the detriment of me was to try to essentially like mediate their marriage, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, looking back on it was a fool's errand, of course, because there's nothing I can do. But, you know, the part, the sort of like Enneagram type two sort of people pleasing, I don't deserve love Mm -hmm. part of me, like felt like he needed to do that. And Mm -hmm. so there was a period of time where they were separated and I was essentially kind of like helping out my mom, like uh, she would cry on my shoulder and, and cry about my father. And then I would go to my dad and he would yell about my mom and I would try to like, just go back and forth. Mm. And this was when I was, you know, around 1920 in there. And, you know, I, I wanted to make it better. Right. I wanted to fix it, but you know, uh, of course I couldn't, but my reaction to that was like, okay, I can control food. Right. That's, you know, it was, it was a control thing. I felt very out of control. And so I poured all of that feeling of out of control and feeling not being seen into orthorexia, into anorexia, uh, which lasted uh, five years or so and maybe four years and, and, you know, nearly killed me. I, I was very, very sick. And, you know, I, I even went to study abroad in Swansea, Wales during the time. And that was kind of where it got the worst. And it was just a slow death was what it was about. Um, And I think a part of me wanted people to kind of see me struggle, like, you know, see what you did to me kind of Mm, thing. Um, You know, which is, you know, unfair, but that's how I felt at the time, I think. Yeah. I love that you're touching on this point, because I think it's something that we understand and anyone who's ever sort of struggled with an eating disorder understands, but I don't think everyone understands that. I think there's always almost that I have heard a component of an attempt to try to gain some control in a world that feels chaotic that is linked to an eating disorder. I just sort Mm -hmm. of see that like across the board. And I think so much of the time people think that eating disorders are about body image and vanity. And really it's about like, I am trying to get some control of something and this is the thing that I can control. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it was also a great deal of self-hate, right? Mm. And and feeling that, uh, feeling hopeless and useless, right? Like me trying to attempt to mediate mediate a marriage and and finding no headway, right? And then the response to that is, I feel useless. Mm. I can't do anything, right? I don't deserve, you know, to be nourished. You know, Mm, I don't deserve love, like all these things that still hang over my head that I I try to combat. But yeah, it it was a very dark, scary time of my life. And, you know, I I look back on it and I I feel like, gosh, I must have irreparable damage, you know, to my heart or something, you know, because I like there was a period of time where all my hair was falling out. You know, I was I was 114 pounds. I was very, very sick and everything hurt. And yet I continued, you know, and it, and, mm-hmm. and it took a doctor and a great deal of suicidal, suicidal ideation to a doctor basically said, you know, your heart's going to stop unless you make a change. And I, I like to now like look back on that sort of romantically and metaphorically and say like, okay, I did change my heart in that I opened it, mm-hmm. right? That, that's kind of how I like to like reframe that. But the reality is that like I started shoveling food into my body until I could figure out how to deal with the emotional mental piece of it. 
What do you feel like, and, and at that point, had you already started your therapy or was it the medical doctor kind of saying that to you that you were like, okay, now I need to go into the, the therapy side as well? Therapy came after that. Yeah. Although I did have, the very first time I went to therapy was one single, maybe 20 minute session with this Welsh therapist who was a woman and it, it felt to me like she had never experienced any man talking about having an eating disorder. I just felt very unseen. Like mm. she didn't know what to do with me. And so I left very, you know, hopeless. Will you say more about what that looked like, her not seeing you as a man? Because I think that, that I think there might be some misconceptions there, some things that I would love for you to speak to what that felt like or how, how she spoke to it. Men have it hard, you guys. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. That was well, a joke. I'm, um, I'm, 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 we were both not in agreement. Yes. White male of immense privilege here. Um, that was a joke. Um, yeah, no, it felt, it just felt like, like it's hard, like it, looking back on that time, it is, you know, and you hear this, it's very fuzzy in a lot of ways. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was just kind of, barely uh, alive and so it just felt like I wasn't seen it felt like whatever I was saying she didn't have answers for and you know it was probably a result of like maybe her lack of inexperience in that specific area right but it was also probably me like not you know being truthful to myself right it was probably me even masking a lot of like what I was saying you know or how bad it really was or whatever exactly exactly and I, I probably felt a lot of shame and not shame, I think, in the sort of like the gendered way, like a man with an eating disorder, but like shame and that like, God, how, do, how can I let myself get to this place? You know, I think mm-hmm. I ha- had some shame in that way. And so I was probably masking a lot of what I was saying. And so what I did say was probably gobbledygook to her. Yeah. I think the point too um, that I've heard you say a couple of times and I want to I wanna note it is this feeling of being unseen, mm-hmm. I think, across the board. And then you made a comment earlier about how um, there was potentially a component to the eating disorder. Because I I recognize there is a difference between anorexia and bulimia in the sense that, like you said with anorexia, it was almost as if you were trying to be seen. There was like a small piece of you, and correct me if I got that wrong, but it almost sounded like what you were saying is, in a way, there was a small part of you that maybe hoped that somebody would see it. And so I also wonder, mostly unconscious, I'm sure, how much of how much that plays into anorexia um, and what your thoughts are on that. Because obviously the control piece, Danae's point, I've worked with a lot of clients who that is one of the biggest components to their anorexia. But this idea of maybe there's a small part of them that also just really wishes or hopes that somebody would see their pain, Mm. I think is such a profound thought or statement or, or, you know, that I, I just want you to maybe roll around in a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. When, you, when you're saying that, the first thought I had was the conversations I've had with other people in recovery or who have recovered like myself from eating disorders, the common thing is that they want to not be seen, like, mm-hmm. like they want to disappear. disappear. Right? Like, mm-hmm. like those are the words that I hear. And that is, that is different from the context that I have. And I wonder if part of it is, is, and I'll get to that in a second, but I wonder if part of it is like last year, the fir- for the very first time in my life, I spent some time with other people who have recovered or in recovery from eating disorders. And it felt very like, oh my God, this is, these are my people. Mm-hmm. Like it felt very home. But prior to that, I'd never experienced any, anyone else. Mm-hmm. I recovered on my own through the help of, you know, some family and friends and things like that. I never, you know, sought treatment or anything like that. 
And so um, I wonder maybe that's a component of it, but I always felt a bit of like a black sheep in the family, in my mm -hmm. family. I always felt very uh, alone in my thoughts and feelings. And, you know, I was kind of the, my, my family is a bit loud and, and opinionated and very binary in their thinking. Mm -hmm. And I felt differently and I mm -hmm. was different. And, and so I felt in that respect, I felt alone and unseen right mm -hmm. in that context and then in a way i wanted them to see that like look like i <laughs> i'm dying here yeah. and i want you to see me yeah. like, i want you to see not that like they did it you know like that is you know not the right sort of context but that we need to see people we need to see each other and 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 see their pain and be witness to their pain and try to understand and i think that takes work and also it takes humility and leading with our hearts as opposed to our egos right like that is a work that i'm trying to do more in my life is is really to see people and accept them for who they are and champion their growth as people and i think that takes work and i i've experienced a lot of like a lack of that and it's mm -hmm it feels hard. Like that's, it's just not a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of wanted to circle back to something that you you said a minute ago that I, I saw both Vanessa and I having sort of a large reaction to was you sort of said jokingly, I know it's so hard for me as a man. Mm. And, you know, I think the therapists in both of us sort of jumped because I think this is something that I have come up so often with my Caucasian male clients, which is this idea of my struggle isn't as big because I have allowed. so much privilege. Yes, who am I to feel pain? Like, let me minimize my pain. And I think, you know, I just want to speak to that because I feel like there's so many ways that we as a society are failing our men. And I, and I love the work that you do, known for this reason, because I feel like you sort of bring this idea of men are actually experiencing all of the emotions that women mm -hmm. are experiencing, regardless of gender and, you know, race. But that, you know, there's this documentary, um, The Mask You Live In. I don't know if mm -hmm. you guys have heard of it, mm -hmm. but I uh, tell a lot of my male clients to, to watch it because I think that it's just really important that we sort of condition little boys to feel like whatever it is that you're experiencing emotionally, put it down, push it down. It's not, it's not really relevant. It's, you know, man up, whatever the thing is we tell our boys. And it is just so damaging. And I feel like I continue to hear it as I talk to men, like, mm. oh, well, you know, whatever I'm feeling, it's, I'm a man. It's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I've got it easier than, than the women in the room. Right. And I, I appreciate that. There's two, two responses I have to that. One is I wasn't saying that um, as a sort of comparative suffering, mm. I don't think there's any use in comparative suffering. It's not yeah. a useful tool. But I think it is important to recognize privilege. Mm -hmm. I can sure. hold on to both, right? I can yeah. hold on to the fact that yes. I do have immense privilege, right? And still hold my pain, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think, I think there's a faulty logic in the way we look at that stuff sometimes and think that we can't hold those truths simultaneously, right? They, it's almost like they have to cancel each other out or something, and that's just wrong. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. I have a, I have a certain person in mind that came up to for me when I was thinking about that, which um, the <laughs> idea that both can exist. I mean, I think that that can be across the board, right? I mean, I think yeah. this is part of the work that we do to become more human, right? Is understanding that all things can exist. Um, yeah especially the things that seem like they're in direct opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. And so I like that you, that was your response to it. It's like, yes, I do also see that I do have this privilege and I can still be in my suffering and admit my suffering and not compare it. Right. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and how can we stay in the curiosity about all of our experiences, what it is like to be in your skin mm-hmm. versus sort of like, well, to your point, you know, your suffering isn't as big as mine or that comparative suffering that you're speaking about, but that all of us have our individual experience of what it is to be alive. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's important to look at both, right? The individual mm-hmm. and the individual in context of the collective, mm-hmm. right? Like you talk about raising young boys and, you know, I'm 38. So I, I was raised in a time where, you know, emotions and these things like weren't talked about in context of men. And I think we're getting better, but I do think that societal structure breeds a lot of violence toward women right Mm -hmm. um misogyny racism homophobia like those structures breed a lot of yeah like heartache and and division in our culture and that that stuff like you know makes me uh it just gives me nightmares to think about but i do think it's getting better I do think that it is important for men to talk openly about their feelings because mm-hmm. we're all human and we all have feelings, right? And like, I was just thinking about this, right? I was writing about this uh, just the other day and thinking about how, yeah, like you said it, Danae, like how we have to man up, right? Or even in some of the language, I heard a woman I don't know if it was a friend or like on TV, like language like, oh, you have the balls to do this, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is is gendered language that enforces these things that we're talking about that are so toxic. Mm -hmm. And how do we break that stuff down? Um, I guess having these conversations, right? And and continuing to raise little boys and little girls to feel all their feelings, right? And recognize Mm -hmm. that, you know, they're not alone in them. Wasn't it? Um, I think it was. I think it was Betty White that actually made that comment a long time ago about like I don't know why we use that comment and we pretend mm. balls are so strong when actually they're like the weakest <laughs> part of the body. And she goes, "We should say you're being a vagina because it's actually the strongest like right. organ that we yeah. have." And it was yeah. hilarious. I mean, still Betty White, but <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do think, and and I hope that it's changing. And I do think that there are men like yourself and you know others. That's his boyfriend that I and that are starting to create dialogue around how do we create space for men to be in the full experience of their humanity, to name what it is and um, normalize, you know, that mm-hmm. it's important to talk well, about. Well, there's more stuff. emotions and anger, right? Yes. I think that's so important for men because that's what you guys are trained that you're only, it's the only safe feeling, right? right. That you're allowed to feel and express is anger. And so everything gets filtered into that one emotion and, and, to your point, when you're talking about racism and sexism, I mean, it explodes out because that's the only acceptable thing that you're allowed yeah. to feel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I, I, it's maybe this is wrong, but I, I do feel like the way, like my father being this sort of, you know, alpha sort of 
successful businessman, you know, later in his life and, and very kind of, you know, strong and, and, and then me kind of like reacting to that early on and like, Oh, this is not what I like. This is not Mm -hmm. the model that I want. I feel like I had in a weird way, a leg up on that, on sort of reframing that narrative and sort of rewriting that stuff for myself. Cause you know, I saw early on that that doesn't create, you know, harmony that, that Mm -hmm. just creates division and heartache, you know? Yeah. You actually saw it. It went the opposite direction. Like you Mm -hmm. saw it and pivoted away from it rather than what a lot of people do, which is just continuing the cycle. Right. Right. And how did you see it impact your dad or how did you see it impacting men in negative ways that you knew that that's not what I want to sort of move towards? Well, I, I, you know, I think it, I think a lot of it was just the, the rage that I saw bubbling inside of him, like mm. on the surface always. My mother, you know, she would be yelled at often. And, and you know, my dad like was like holding this rage in his body and it was so palpable. Mm. And, it, and it came out at times. It came out at times, you know, when he'd, you know, hit me with sticks or whatever. The time he threw the kitten off the balcony and, you know, and the time he, you know, just like real like, bursts of violence right that just terrified me and 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 that sort of violence and that that rage inside like is so deeply unhealthy and it it just it scared me right like those violent outbursts it scared me there's such a feeling that i i have like as you're talking about this and and i'm separating it out even like the gender thing i i can actually see i feel it in my own body and so i want to i want to call it out because i recognize it's probably not just me it's a collective thing while simultaneously we teach boys that anger is the only acceptable emotion, we also as a society, as a society are very, um, at least with women, I mean, I guess maybe in general, anger is also a very shameful emotion to feel mm. um, and not pretty and, and kind of ugly and gross, right? And right. so I actually, it kind of resonates with me what you're saying about seeing that, like that rage bubbling out of the surface. Um, you know, I, I feel like my mom, especially when she was younger, was very similar and I think for me, part of my work or journey or realizing right now, holy shit, there's so much more to do around that is trying to pretend like I don't have that. Mm. Sure. Right. Because I yeah. saw it in her. And so there's so much of my growing up. I was like, nope, nope, nope. And it is there. I mean, of yeah. course it's there, right? Isn't it mm. one of many of the spectrum of emotions that we all feel as a human, but it doesn't feel safe to me to feel because it, it's like scary. Right. And I, and I feel like I've, mm. I've heard similar ways of saying it, I think, from clients. And I don't know, the way you were just talking about it really brought that up for me, almost like palpably in my chest. I was like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> I do think we, as children of parents, right, like we say to ourselves, we're not going to be that thing. Like, we're not going to, like, follow their, you know, and I think there's um, some uh, denial in that, right, and, and ignoring of the thing, right? And I think I did that for a while. But you're right. And at a certain point, we have to look at it and understand that like, it's a human emotion or whatever it is like there's there's regardless of what it is, we need to look at it, right? We need to be curious about it. We need to explore it. You know, we can't just shove it down. Well, also, you know, you made a comment and what you had written to us uh, about boundaries being something that you're really working Mm. on. And, you know, one of the sayings that we have in therapy is um, when you know that a boundary has been violated, you usually know because you you feel a sense of anger. 
Mm. That's one of your kind of uh, red flags that a boundary has either been violated or you haven't actually set a boundary. So you're kind of angry with yourself. Yeah. And so this might be like a tangled web we weave, but it, I think it's interesting that we're talking about anger and then also boundaries was something that for you, at least right now, is, is like your current work. Boundaries are hard. Mm-hmm. Boundaries are <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I mean, there's like the more I'm like sort of coming to terms with what they are and what they mean and working on it in therapy, there's grief in boundaries, there's loss in boundaries, there's, you know, self-acceptance in boundaries, there's mm-hmm. knowing in boundaries, there's all of it. And and for me, like specifically the boundaries I'm working on now are in context of my family at large, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, and and specifically, you know, my mother, um, you know, I I haven't had a relationship with my father for many years and we don't really speak anymore. And that's, that's a boundary I've created and, and it feels healthy and good for me. But with my mom, she, she's made it difficult over the last couple of years. You know, she outwardly has said to me, you know, to my face that we can never be close because I don't believe in her God. Uh, she has said to me that the work that I'm doing is negative, you know, in, in terms of the podcast and talking about empathy and talking about our feelings. She thinks that is a negative, gross pursuit. And she, you know, she's basically said the Feely Human Collective, this new project I'm working on is, you know, I essentially like reached out to her and said, hey, like I'm doing this crowdfunding thing. And her response was, I'd rather support um, something that I know helps people. Wow. About a year ago, we had this big blow up and, and there was a great deal of anger. And I, I talked about it at length on my podcast, but essentially, you know, it was a, a very illuminating to the fact that she doesn't see me or accept mm-hmm. me as, as who I am. I think there's a great deal of probably guilt in her and, and, you know, I don't want to speak too much about how she's feeling, but it just felt immensely, I felt immensely unseen. And so, you know, and she continues to, to sort of ring that tune. And so I, I'm coming to terms with the fact that like, okay, how can I, how can I, you know, maybe continue to have her in my life, but also have the right boundaries that don't get me hurt. Right. And also like respect myself. Mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I'm still working on it. It's it's still a little messy. It is. And, you know, I think what you're speaking to is so powerful to me, known because I think so much of the work that I know Vanessa and I talk a lot about in terms of individuation work, which is mm-hmm. um, the work that Carl Jung talks about, which is like lifelong work, but it's sort of like this process of individuating from our family of origin and then, you know, myself with a capital S and what does that mean and what does that look like and what are my truths versus the truths that I was sort of conditioned to believe. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of the time as adults, what we are sort of, you know, I want to say like reacting from in an unconscious way is these attempts that we made when we were little and are still, frankly, continuing to make to be seen by our Mm -hmm. parents, you know, do you see me? Am I okay with you? Will you accept me and love me as I am? And I think a big part of the individuation work becomes, do I see me? Do I accept me Mm. as I am? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'd imagine you two being parents of young children, you'll deal with this eventually. It's that, Mm. 
I'd imagine for my mom, and I have a great deal of empathy, like thinking about it is like, she, I think is holding on to the person I was, right? Mm. You know, the sensitive, like, sort of assistant to her, you know, Mm -hmm. like the sensitive person at her side. And I still am very much the sensitive person, but I'm also, right, like seeing myself and accepting Mm -hmm. myself and, and, and growing in ways that, you know, are maybe counterintuitive to what she thinks, right? You know, the way she thinks about this stuff is like ignoring them. And I, that's just not the way I see it, right? And because like, I don't sort of frame the world in this binary way, I can see the beauty in so many truths, right? And, and there are so many truths, right? And, and her framework is a singular truth, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that just doesn't align with the way I see the world and see my feelings and see mental health, all of it, right? And I think she can't get over that, right? And so that's not for me. That's her thing, right? And I have to accept that. And, you know, I've, I've struggled with this thing that like, like I, I still want them to see me, right? I still want them to accept me. Like I, it, it's, yes. it makes me sad, right? It, like it really does make me upset and sad. But at a certain point, I have to accept that like I do love myself and I do value the work that I'm doing. And, you know, I, I recently read the Queen Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, <laughs> and she was talking about the islands, right, that we have, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I... I have people in my life, friends who do see me and accept me. And I, I bring those people on my island because um, they are going to champion my growth. You know, they are going to see me for who I am and cheer me on and, and, you know, and meet me heart to heart in ways that the people who aren't just aren't. And those people aren't going to be on my island. And that's, that's the boundary and the self-love that, that I need to pursue, I think. Well, and I think you you spoke to something that I'm I know a lot of people listening it will hit home with them because I I actually I teach a class around boundaries and so many times I say to people, look, one of the hardest things about boundaries is that they act as a strainer on relationships, right? I mean, self work in general acts as a strainer, yeah. and there are people who are going to fall through that strainer, and it's not really because of you, it's because of them. It's because when we set this boundary or we start to do this kind of inner work it's a harsh mirror to look in for that person, right? Mm. And so when I think about your mom, what happens is it's not, it's not actually about you, mm. right? It's about her reflection back to herself that she's getting from you mm. and from this work that you're doing. And she's not, at least right now, capable of actually seeing that. And that feels like too much for her. So this is what is so difficult about boundaries is that we do tend to have to let go of people. And, and that feels really, really scary. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's beautifully said. I, I do like to think of sort of human connection in in that mirror way. I think mm-hmm. we can be mirrors for each other, but it illuminates truth, right? And truth can be, you know, difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with what you were saying about like the people on your island, and that was the part of um, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, that literally had me sitting there like in a puddle of tears, because I think (laughs) it is just so resonant of something that we have all experienced in our family of origin and this, this space of like, this is my truth, and this is my island, and this is the safe space that I have to create for myself in order to exist and thrive. And, and I love so much knowing that you're 
first response was to sort of speak with some compassion for your mom. Mm -hmm. Because I think when we understand our parents were doing the best that they can could yeah. with the tools that they had, and quite often they are reacting um, to us. And yes, absolutely. Since being a parent, I see this so much in myself that it is so hard not to react from your fears, your mm. wounds, your um, ego, and sort of yeah. put that on your child. And versus like really seeing your child for who they are versus who this life has conditioned me to believe they should be, right? Mm -hmm. But is that who my child that is in front of me truly is, right? Can yeah. I see that child? That's so well said. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I do think we have to have compassion. Mm -hmm. I, I think I've, I've thought about that recently in context of like my relationship with my father and understanding that, I, like, I never knew his parents because they died when I was a baby and my dad was in his 30s. And from what I knew about them in context of like, you know, my mom talking about them or my dad talking about them. Uh, they were very cold, you know, and not very loving. And, and so, you know, that is, that is part of it. That is part of the um, contextual sort of compassion. I think we need to, to give each other is understanding where we come from and, and, and not to like um, condone behavior, but just to apply empathy. Right. And, and right. try to understand, you know, I like that contextual compassion. I think that's a really good way to, to put it. And, you know, it sees it in a way, it's not just to give them grace, but it's also to give yourself grace. Mm. Applying empathy, right, with your parents, uh, especially for most of us, it's with our parents. It's, it's, of course, it's about them, but it's also about us. Yeah. You know, it gives us the ability to step out of what we're kind of left to carry from them. Um, and in a sense, give them back what they kind of put on us to carry when we're able to give them that empathy. Mm. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I see that. I mean, I, I think empathy, empathy is the best, you guys. <laughs> I love empathy. I mean, it really is like, I, as I think more and more about empathy in context of human relationships and connection and healing, it truly is the best because it allows us to see each other and be mm -hmm. open to different ideas and perspectives and it informs me and heals me and, and challenges me every day. And I, I just, it's the best. I've done a couple of workshops, empathy workshops at uh, some local colleges recently and talking about empathy in terms of like coronavirus, talking about empathy in terms of just, I think the nuances we don't think about of empathy, which is like, we often think about it in this way that's like putting ourselves in the shoes of another, right? Um, which I think it's it's very much that, but what we don't think about empathy is the is the piece of it where, like, we feel like we have to like have the same exact experience as another, right? But right. the fact remains is that we don't. We can still go there emotionally because we have human compassion and we have this range of emotions and we've been in pain, we've had struggles, we can relate those things. That takes that takes practice, right? That mm -hmm. takes a skill, but we can still apply empathy in so many contexts. I think that we forget, like we just like maybe sometimes shut down and I've definitely done it myself where we're like, Oh, I, I haven't experienced this particular brand of suffering. And so mm -hmm. I can't have empathy, but that's not true. Well, I think that as therapists, we, we struggle with that. Meaning a lot of times I've heard people say, you know, they're looking for a therapist that has been through a specific thing that they've been through. Mm. And I don't think that that has to be the only kind of, you know, 
prerequisite when you're finding a therapist because yeah. we don't have to have been through the exact same thing to be able to empathize and be able to kind of walk shoulder to shoulder with you through your pain. You know, it's not about us being able to tap into the exact same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Will you explain a little bit more about the, the new project for us? I want people to hear kind of what you're doing, you know, what the point of it is. I mean, I think we've heard kind of what the, the drive for you has been to create mm -hmm. it, but I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, thank you so much. I, you know, I, it's called the Feely Human Collective and it kind of stemmed out of this experience in doing my podcast, Yumi Empathy, which I created because I wanted a safe space for people, right? You know, coming from this place where I maybe felt not safe and finding safety in my life partnership and, you know, friends and finding these safe spaces has been such a healing, you know, growth, you know, force for me. And so I wanted to, you know, as, as sort of, you know, I'm two years, two and a half years into Yumi Empathy, I was just like, I want to do more. Like this is the work that really fills my heart. And I, I, I know that it's healing. I know that it's beautiful. And, and so the Feel the Human Collective in its first phase, which launches May 27th, is, is going to be an online space with a journal, uh, with this workshop uh, that I'm developing, this free workshop that is all around sort of the tools, empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding, those three, three components that have been sort of crucial in my mental health. And so tapping into those skills and, and understanding those skills in context of our human experience and recovery and, and mental health. And so the first phase, like I said, a journal space where anyone can come and write and, and, and sort of explore their stories in written form. And then the workshops, and I'm, I'm working with some folks uh, to develop more workshops online. There'll be a shop as well, all sorts of feely human merch. And then I'm also Oof. collaborating with independent artists to give them another space uh, to, to showcase their work. And really, feely human would be sort of removing all of the sort of annoying obstacles that come with a lot of like, you know, trying to make it as a freelance artist, like such as inventory, you know, hosting, you know, fulfillment, shipping, all of that stuff. Um, Feely Human would be doing. And then the podcast will continue, of course. And really the first couple of years, I sort of envision it as really kind of just building the community, building up the workshops, building up the sort of journal uh, space. And my goal is eventually to take all of those workshops into businesses and schools. I mentioned I've done a couple of workshops offline and, and they're just the best. And I, I want to do retreats. And that's that sort of the first phase is really like the foundational piece to sort of build toward the in-person stuff. And, and with the goal of quitting my day job and being able to really reach people and really to create this, like I said, this safe space for people to feel their feelings, to explore their feelings, to feel safe and, and seen and connected. And I'm excited. It's been a it's been about a year in the works and um, it's been a lot of work and um, we'll see. I'm very excited though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so excited. Awesome. Yes. So excited for you, Noon. And I think it's what's really been cool to me about this time is that, you know, I do feel like there is so much more of a hunger um, 
And you're seeing people sort of like reaching out virtually to one another to sort mm. of connect in these authentic ways. And I think platforms like Feely Human Collective are going to be really important as we are sort of, you know, shifting into this digital world where this is kind of how we're meeting one another, right? Right. And I, I do think, you know, obviously face-to-face, -face, you know, that's a unique sort of beauty, right? You know, and that connection. But I do think there's still so much connection that can happen virtually and, and using those tools of empathy and vulnerability, you know, vulnerability, you know, as, as I think you sort of highlighted Brene Brown earlier, Vanessa, you know, she talks about vulnerability as this piece that's essential to our growth and mm -hmm. connection, right? And I believe that to be true. And so Feely Human, just like the podcast, is another space to explore that stuff and to get vulnerable because getting vulnerable allows other people in, allows other people to relate and see you. And then, and then that sort of like triggers this like, oh, I relate to that. I, 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 I've gone through that. And, mm -hmm. and then there, there's a connection there, right? And, right. You know, and I, I just want to continue sort of building up that frame of thinking through this new online space. Um, like I said, I, I'm going to sort of take it slow and steady because I have you know, right now I'm working like 14 hours a day. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it is my aim to make it a reality, you know, because mm -hmm. I, you know, I want to see you guys at a future Feely Human retreat, you know, yeah. doing like a little workshop and, and just, can you imagine that three days of just like feely, 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 feely <laughs> stuff, like with all sorts of, we have like mindfulness and we have like yoga and we have, you know, all these different like little pieces that all sort of tie into this mission of sort of building our empathy and vulnerability and emotional wayfinding. And uh, just thinking about it makes me happy. Well, and I love to, you basically took something that you grew up experiencing, which is this feeling of not being seen. And in a way you've turned this into like a goal right because when you talk about this idea of people coming together and connecting and having that connection that connection and that experience that is a feeling of being seen right when you connect yeah. with that other person and so it's like taking your pain and turning it into okay I, I i can help others with this pain that i've i've grown up with yeah absolutely and and thank you for seeing that it's mm -hmm. definitely part of it like and i and i pour all of myself into everything I do and especially feel human. And I, I, I want people to see, I want people to feel safe because like I'm sharing my story, right? Like in this workshop I'm developing, which is about 10,000 words already. There's tons of stories that I haven't told before and things that contextualize my experience and allow people in to see that like, Oh, you know, known was a fuck up you know sorry for the language but like known like did a lot of shitty stuff and i talk about it because i think it's important to like be authentic and to share this stuff because it it humanizes and it normalizes yeah. these experiences and i and i will always do that because mm -hmm. i i think i was in a place where i wasn't doing that for so long and it it, it almost killed me right mm -hmm. and so sharing myself with the goal of allowing people in and connecting you know, it's not this ego-led sort of thing. It's 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 the best. You know, it's my favorite thing. Love that so much, Noan. And thank you for doing it because I feel like you're helping so many people with the work that you do. So Vanessa and I have a couple questions that we ask our guests as we're sort of wrapping up. Um, so the first question um, we always like to ask is, what breaks your heart? Oh, gosh. What breaks my heart? 
so I have a, I have a very intense relationship with animals. Mm. I love animals. Um, I have this 13 and a half year old dog named Scooby Black Lab, and he's my everything. Mm. And, and it's, it's interesting because I've had to, I've had to kind of come to terms with my relationship with animals because I'm not, you know, I'm not a vegan. I do eat meat from time to time. And I've had to sort of come to terms with that. But like, what breaks my heart, sorry, I'm being rambly, but a funny thing that happens whenever I see, you know, like animals in movies or TV shows, like my, my wife and I were trying to watch Tiger King a couple of weeks ago. Mm. I got 30 seconds in and the, I had to turn it off because I saw a lion that was in the back of this 80s Mercedes Benz. And I was like, nope, I'm out. This is gonna be way too upsetting for me. Mm-hmm. So what breaks my heart is seeing animals not in their right environment. Like that's mm-hmm. why I could never go to a zoo. Zoos upset me immensely. I can't do it. Um, and just like, I don't know. I feel like animals are empathy machines. Mm-hmm. They feel we have horses too. And, and, and those are, I mean, just immensely like pick up on everything you're feeling. Yeah. Right. And it's, and it, it breaks my heart that they, exist in that way and humans either treat them poorly or don't see that um and i i'm probably like being maybe hypocritical because i eat chicken from time to time or fish but that's 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 the first thing that came to mind yeah (laughs) i love it (laughs) so the next one that we always ask is um where or what do you find yourself in a flow state? Like what is flow for you? Mm. Lately it's been writing this workshop, but I I think that a lot of times it's being on the trail and either running or hiking. Mm -hmm. I I like to, my, my wife and I have very different hiking styles. Like she wants to go, she wants to have a plan. She needs to know where she's going. She needs to know how long and how many snacks are involved and how much water we have. And that's great. I'm not belittling that. <laughs> she's keeping you alive. No, appreciate she's, it. <laughs> she's keeping me alive. But my style is let's go on an adventure and not think about any practical things oh, and see where, see where it goes. That's and right. See, you know, and, and that, like, I can take that to a place where it brings my wife discomfort but it also brings me a great deal of joy in that I can just kind of be and, and it's just such a feeling of connectedness and healing. And it, it just, it brings me immense joy to be out on the trail and just kind of think about my relation to the universe and, um, and not have to think about water or snacks. <laughs> she has to think about snacks for you. That's right. <laughs> That's the person right. who thinks about the snacks is activated. Well, <laughs> late, lately, lately we've had some uh, mountain sightings very close oh, to us, whoa. and she's like, "Because no I sex. go off running in the morning," and she's like, "Our neighbors have this like little taser thing," and I was, she's like, "She wants me to bring it," and I was like, "I mean, if I if I die, I die." You're gonna oh, tase a mountain God. lion? I know, right? Am I gonna tase a mountain lion? Come on now. that's amazing all right last question this one's deep what's Mm. your favorite food john favorite food 
Hmm. Stumps a no. lot of people, I realize. <laughs> well, it's so, well. I think I think the reason is because it's like talking about like what's your favorite movie or book. Right? Yeah, it's there's so, big. so much. Uh, there's a copious amount of joy that's in mm. there. You know, my the th- my brain first went to a fresh salad. Honestly, like we we ha- we sounds we, like you, Vanessa. We <laughs> access. We have a community well, garden. So. We have a garden <laughs> in our community that we can go and pick lettuce from and tomatoes and and beets and things and so fresh veggies and 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 fruit and stuff from the garden and just you know homemade dressing and that's the best i can get down with that because there is something unbelievable about actually picking food off of a vine and then Mm. eating it like Mm -hmm. the taste is is like nothing you've ever experienced i mean for me moving from the east coast to the west coast when I got out here and I was like, this is what a strawberry is supposed to taste like, <laughs> you know, like mind blowing. Yes. It, it, it's huge when you actually get that, like right from the ground. It's, it's not a grocery store, tomato or strawberry or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, Noan, thank you so much for doing this with us. We are just so grateful and, you know, I just feel so inspired by the work you're doing in the world, the way that you are sort of giving people permission to show up as their full feely human selves and um, really excited about the feely human collective and um, keep Vanessa and I posted. We want to be a part of it and Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just keep on keeping on with this work. It's so important. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And and thank you for having me. I, I, I've been listening to this podcast and it's great. You guys are doing a a tremendous work yourselves. So you should be proud of yourselves. Thanks, Noan. Someday we'll have a studio like yours and set up in our closet. <laughs> oh, I do not have a studio. Like we have this tiny house and I'm in I'm in the room where we do all the things. Yeah. So yeah. no studio. It's, it's, it's just, very fancy. Yeah. <laughs> oh. All right. All right, well. well. Be well. Be well. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us, you can find us on Instagram at Vanessa S. Bennett and at Danae Logan Selkin.